Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with the latest AEW and NXT edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again for episode 297 as we break down every single thing that happened in the last week across AEW and NXT. AEW is still building for Double or Nothing at the end of May, while NXT presented a very special spring break-in show on Tuesday. We also have additional news from both brands as AEW and NXT combined to release slash not renew about 14 wrestlers over the past week. So, as I said, there will be plenty to discuss on this episode of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, but I would be remiss if I began any episode of this show without a very specific reminder that Getting Over So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Also leave a review. Let people know how much you love listening to this podcast, how much you love being a subscriber to this podcast, and how much you love simply being a getting overhead. Tell them why they should listen, why they should subscribe. Those five-star reviews are insanely important to us. And every single time one of you leaves a written review, We will read it live here on the show. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And there is no better time to follow us than this week because not only will we be doing our normal tweeting as we do throughout the week, letting you guys know when new shows are dropping, but we will have a live show on Twitter Spaces this coming Sunday, 6.30 p.m. Eastern, 30 minutes before the official WWE kickoff show. We will do a live pre-show for WrestleMania Backlash. We do that every single uh, pay-per-view day, basically. We'll do a live pre-show on Twitter Spaces. Of course, we will also have polls, so you can provide your pre- and post-show grades for WWE WrestleMania Backlash on Sunday. Every reason to be following us on Twitter, at Getting Overcast. But this show is not about WWE proper. Instead, it is about AEW and NXT. And before we get into the breakdowns of each show this week, I do want to go over that big list of releases and talent that has not been re-signed across both brands. So the numbers were larger for NXT, of course, than they were with AEW. So let's start there and we will talk about both before we move into the breakdowns of the NXT show and both AEW television shows this week, Dynamite and Rampage. So regarding these releases from the NXT side, there were 10 names in total. I would say there's probably five that are notable and five, not so much. I'll go through them one by one. You guys will get my immediate take. And uh, certainly if you guys have any follow-up questions, thoughts, these are all things that we can address on next week's show. So from NXT, the most notable name singularly, as far as I'm concerned, is Dakota Kai. And There's an interesting circumstance with Dakota Kai because she was released with time remaining on her contract, but she did reportedly tell WWE that she would not be re-signing. They apparently wanted her to. She told them that she would not. And it's not a surprise that she chose not to re-sign because look, this is someone who has been in NXT her entire career. She never got an opportunity on the main roster. She recently did compete in dark matches for WWE. And they chose not to bring her up as they did with a number of other talents, LA Knight, uh, Tommaso Ciampa, Raquel now Rodriguez among them. She was involved in those dark matches as well, but she was not called up to the main roster. She stayed in NXT. She was in a title program with Mandy Rose. She ended up winning the NXT Women's Tag Team Championships for a second time. Uh, But the first time they won them, her and Raquel Gonzalez back then, They held them for like an hour. Uh, The second time that they won them, they held them for, what was it, 48 hours? I mean, you know, less than a week, basically, they had the championships. So they kept giving her these title reigns and then taking them away from her immediately. But that was really indicative of how WWE saw her. She is not someone who they as a company decided they wanted to invest in as a performer, which is an utter shock 
because she has five tools. She's a five tool player. She can cut the promos. She can wrestle. She does characters. I mean, she she can be comedic. She can be a babyface. She can be a heel. She is the total package of what you want from a women's wrestler. You know, it was one thing when they called up Tegan Knox to the main roster and then released her. You could say, okay, that sucks. But at least it made a shred of sense because Tegan was injured so frequently and it really did affect her in-ring ability. Not saying she was a bad wrestler, but it did affect, you know, how much she could do. Dakota Kai, as far as I know, she had one knee injury and that was really it. She's been there. She's been wrestling. They just never wanted to elevate her. This is a woman who should have been at least a one-time, if not multi-time NXT Women's Champion. And when you're there for that period of time and you see that you don't have a future with WWE, not re-signing has to be the right decision. So she chose not to re-sign. WWE said, if that's the case for you, then we're not gonna keep you around and we're gonna release you early. That's what they did. Um, You know, certainly I don't love the result, right? But you can't really blame her for making that decision. And you can't really blame WWE saying, hey, if we need to cut, you know, funds, we need to cut salary. Well, someone who said, who's already told us that she doesn't want to be here anymore, makes sense to release her. So there is Dakota Kai. The other name, the the number two name, that's there's a clear number one, a clear number two that was um, notable and surprising to me was Malcolm Bivens, the former Stokely Hathaway, who will certainly probably return to that name, Stokely Hathaway, um, you know, on the independence. Another person who told WWE he would not be re-signing with them. But unlike Dakota Kai, Bivens is someone who I feel, at least since he started with Diamond Mine, and he was with WWE and NXT well before that, but since then, I thought has been used extremely well to the point that he has proven his ability to such a degree that I thought, man, how has WWE not called him up to the main roster? Well, it turns out they reportedly tried to do so rather than have MVP be the one aligning with Omos. WWE wanted to call up Malcolm Bivens to align with Omos and he turned them down, which is extremely interesting because when he was working the circuits, the Florida loop, as they would call it, before he was on NXT television, he was actually working as a mouthpiece for Omos. So maybe it was a situation where they didn't work well together or Bivens felt like if he did get called up with Omos, he'd kind of get saddled by him and he wanted to do different stuff. I'm not exactly sure what happened. But what I can tell you is that it is a huge surprise to me to see that WWE was using Bivens, had main roster plans for him, at least to that degree, maybe there were other plans as well, spoke to him reportedly on numerous occasions about re-signing because he is an immense talent and he is choosing not to do so. Now, certainly with Bivens, you know, with Dakota Kai, there's a bunch of options. She could go to Impact. She could wrestle back in stardom in Japan. Uh, AEW certainly could sign her. She would up, be an upgrade from a women's talent perspective. Bivens, similarly, he can work wherever he wants. He could go to AEW immediately and be a manager, you know, after his this 30 days wraps up. It would make all the sense in the world But for me, and I've said this about very few people, WWE really felt like the right place for Stokely Hathaway, for Malcolm Bivens. And I am just floored that they really were using him well, in my opinion. They wanted to re-sign him. They tried to call him up and he just did not want to do any of that. So again, this is a situation where you can't really blame WWE when this is a guy who said, I am not going to be re-signing with you. So if they want to cut him early and save on the salary this quarter, again, that makes sense. It's really hard to blame them for that. For me personally, it sucks because Dakota Kai and Malcolm Bivens were two of my favorite people in the current version of NXT and the previous version of NXT as well. Uh, So for them to no longer be there is a huge downer. And for them to no longer be with WWE uh, going forward in the future for me as a viewer, as a fan is a huge downer. But if that's what they want, it's kind of tough to blame WWE for cutting the cost now. That's the way I perceive those. Uh, the other three big names from NXT that were released, uh, Dexter Loomis, uh, you know, with him, this is the best I can say. I liked the gimmick work from the beginning all the way till the end, but every time this guy got in the ring, it was boring as sin. Um, whether he can or cannot cut promos, I don't know. 
because he was never given a chance to do so. But there was only a certain level of ceiling for this character. He reached it a long time ago. And if they were not going to change that gimmick or do something different with him, it certainly was not going to work. So hate to see someone lose their job, um, given his age, given the character and where that was going or where it was not going, really. It's tough to say I don't understand, but it is unfortunate, of course, for him to be released. On the opposite spectrum is Persia Parada, whose release I do not understand at all, because at least with Dakota and Bivens, there were explanations. She was doing very well alongside Indy Hartwell, showed a lot of promise. There were occasions where NXT booked her stronger than Indy, and to see them be together as a tag team, where WWE needs women's tag teams, to see her be there as a, when I say larger, I mean in stature and size, not weight, but a larger woman, someone who could use her strength to di- differentiate herself from a large portion of that division, uh, someone who it looked to me like was consistently improving in the ring. I just don't understand them releasing her at all. So that was among the stranger releases for me. And then the fifth notable name that we can mention here is Harland, um, the former Parker Bordeaux. I mean, that's his, that's his real name. Uh, who reportedly did not develop the way WWE wanted and expected. So his absence uh, alongside Joe Gacy recently makes complete sense. But we have to be candid. WWE saddled this guy with a dog shit gimmick, a dog shit look. They took away everything that got people excited about him, which was the comparisons to Brock Lesnar. And I'm sure they didn't want everyone to say he's the next Brock Lesnar the entire time he was in NXT. But you took away, you know, some interesting characteristics and made this guy into a bald, plain clothes dude. I mean, he was like a, you know, look, let's be candid. I don't want to beat around the bush with the word. He looked like a skinhead. Like that's, that's what he looked like on camera. And no one wants that on television, especially alongside a character like Joe Gacy, who is kind of taking that character in a direction where you could say, hey, in in some ways it could be problematic, right? Uh, This guy was endorsed by Paul Heyman. He had those photos on Twitter with Eva Marie where you're saying, oh man, they're really pushing this guy. They're gonna do something with him. Uh, And they released him because again, reportedly he was not progressing in the ring or on the mic the way they thought he could, presumably in the performance center because we never really saw the guy talk on NXT television. And it's very tough to evaluate it. It's tough to say whether WWE made a good decision or whether this is a missed opportunity. But one thing I will say is having him around and then seeing what you're getting from the Casper brothers and seeing what you're getting from uh, the Creed brothers and Braun Breaker, what he's able to do. And to a far lesser extent, because I'm not a fan, Von Wagner, what he's able to do as a larger guy in that system. You look at Harland, you look at Parker, and you're like, What does he bring to the table that we don't already have much better of on the table? And that's the truth. They have much better versions of him already in NXT in the Performance Center. And it seems like they're backfilling with very similar size dudes where if this guy's not progressing, cutting bait kind of makes sense, especially when he's on a more expensive contract than a lot of the people coming in doing tryouts. So those are the five bigger biggest names that were released by NXT. And the other five names were Paige Prinzivali. I don't even know if that's how you say the name, but that was the gimmick. Um, Sajana George, Draco Anthony, Mila Milani, and Raylan Devine. These were all basically wrestlers who were there on tryout deals. And these are releases that are gonna be the norm going forward for NXT because it is truly becoming a developmental brand again. They Churning out the back of a roster just like churning out the back of a team, is not abnormal for um, sports. It happens all the time in the NFL and minor league baseball. And WWE, because the PC and NXT is truly now this developmental territory, you're gonna see people sign to 30, 60, 90, 120 day deals, sometimes getting short renewals, sometimes not, where they're gonna get released and they're not gonna be part of the company anymore. And I would not be surprised if two, three, four years from now, Some of those people, a very finite number, make their way back into the system once they've gained additional experience and training and tutelage um, on the independent scene or 
even by wrestling matches on AEW Dark or wherever else they end up, you're going to see some of these people again. But it does make sense where if they're not factoring in, they're not working out the way WWE wants them right away for them to get released. The most notable name among those five was Draco Anthony, who did actually make a couple of appearances on NXT television, which makes me think they believe they had something in him. But I will note that when he was on television in a couple of those appearances and matches, he didn't do anything that stood out, that impressed, that was that notable. So those are the 10 NXT releases uh, that came down, I believe, last Friday. Uh, Regarding AEW, there are four, uh, you know, I would call them releases. Technically, they're contract expirations because Tony Khan, I think, doesn't want to be tagged with releasing people, presumably to keep up the quote-unquote better than WWE image that he has going right now. But it is good for the wrestlers that they were kept through the length of their contracts because unlike WWE, which restricts you in terms of where you can wrestle, AEW does not. Um, So they kept getting paid by AEW while they were still working independently. And that is a huge positive for Tony Khan to keep these people on contract and not just release them. They're still getting paid through the end of their deals. And that was a huge uh, deal there. Uh, So Joey Janela is the most notable name of the people who were um, not renewed, whose contracts expired. He was completely and criminally underused by AEW. Just the best way to put it. It seemed like they may have had something for him, but as they kept growing the roster and adding talent, they just said, you know what? This is not a guy that we're interested in pushing or doing anything much with, which is a huge disappointment because, you know, I don't know that Joey Janela ever would have made his way to WWE or ever would have wanted to because he has his own, uh, you know, promotion and he does a lot of stuff independently uh, with training wrestlers and things like that. So, you know, I don't know that he ever would have wanted to go to WWE, but he certainly was someone who was there, you know, working with the Riddles and the Keith Lees and the Drew McIntyres in Evolve, where I personally thought he would eventually wind up in WWE. And I'm not so much saying that his uh, overall profile is tarnished by his AEW time, because it's not. But you do wonder why AEW didn't do more with him. It seems like he's going to be completely okay. But for me personally, when AEW was going through that list of signings, you know, when the company first started, he was one of the people I was most excited to see on a larger stage. And unfortunately, it just never came to fruition. Uh, The other names, Marco Stunt, who of course was a part of Jurassic Express. He was basically the third wheel. I'm not exactly sure what happened there. The guy was super over, right, with the crowd. Uh, His disappearance kind of came out of nowhere and was strange. It happened along the same time that Christian Cage came into the company and began kind of aligning himself with Jurassic Express. By the way, that's an alignment as far as I'm concerned that is overplayed, played out. I kind of want Christian to turn heel and just get away from those guys or do something. And there have been some indications that might go down, but again, it was a replacement that wasn't necessary. I'm not sure why they did it. You know, is anyone going to be heartbroken over Marco Stunt not doing his individual funny type of spots in AEW? No, not really. Uh, But I did think they had something with him and a little bit disappointed to see that that never really played out the way I think a lot of people thought it would. Uh, Jack Evans, uh, who was one part of the tag team with Angelico, who just really, they just kept bouncing around and doing one thing. Uh, They were in one group, they're in another group. Um, they were, I think heels the entire time or most of the time, if not the entire time and Helico remains in AEW, Jack Evans was released. Um, don't really have much to say cause he didn't really do much in his AEW career. And then you have Stu Grayson, uh, certainly a member of the dark order, a tag team partner with evil Uno, who every time this guy was on screen, he flashed in a major way, just his in-ring ability, uh, his work rate, his ability to get people over, you know, I don't know that he's someone that WWE would necessarily pick up, but there's something there with Stu Grayson. Um, he has an interesting look. He can go in the ring, as we've mentioned. He's only 33 years old. He is Canadian. I don't know if he has connections to guys like Sami Zayn or Kevin Owens. I would assume he does, but I certainly don't know. But he is someone who, if they brought him into NXT or they brought him in as part of Hey, if they brought him in as part of Judgment Day, right? Edge's faction on Raw. There's a something there with this guy. I could see him teaming up with Tommaso Ciampa as part of Judgment Day and being a tag team in that faction. There's a lot of interesting stuff I think WWE slash NXT 
could do with Stu Grayson if he's so inclined. But if not, I think there's opportunities hopefully there um, with impact where maybe there's a situation where he can come in and be someone who is right in that mid-card contending for titles. So, you know, I don't know what his plans are, but he was one of the more surprising names. He and Joey Janela, well, Joey Janela wasn't surprising because he hasn't been used. Stu Grayson was the most surprising name out of that foursome to not be renewed by AEW. So look, um, you know, it's unfortunate, of course, that all of these people lost their jobs. We wish them all the best. Uh, You know, whether they end up on the opposite shows or not, you know, that certainly remains to be seen, but it will be interesting to track what happens to all of these people. You know, the most notable names among them, certainly Dakota Kai, Malcolm Bivens, and Stu Grayson. Those three uh, will be most curious to see where they show up, if they show up on the opposite brand, or perhaps even overseas or an impact. That will all be something that works itself out in the weeks uh, and months to come. So moving away from the releases, let's get into the actual wrestling that we got across NXT and AEW. As I say, on every edition of this podcast, uh, you know, if, if you don't watch AEW, if you don't watch NXT, I really hope you listen to both sections. But if you do want to skip to your preferred brand, we have timestamps in our episode description. So you can hit that and figure out exactly what timestamp to jump to so you can listen to your brand. But this week, we are actually going to start with NXT because it did present a special show, NXT Spring Breakin'. Pretty Deadly opened the show basically as the hosts, setting the tone for the entire program. They were tanning at the pool using their NXT titles as sun shields, which I thought was kind of perfect, honestly. It was really smart. Also a shout out to much of the crowd that dressed for the occasion in Hawaiian shirts and beach gear and stuff like that. That gave Spring Break in a pretty cool aesthetic overall. They did not dress it up the way they have in the past for Halloween Havoc and other special events, but because of the crowd, There were some tiki torches that were used. It was mostly done pretty well. Overall, this show delivered. The crowd was mostly great. The action was mostly great. The booking was mostly great. There were certainly down points that we're going to get to in some cheesy bookings that we're going to talk about right off the top here, but nothing that was too bad. So let's go through this entire card and we're going to start with the main event, which was the NXT championship put on the line. Braun Breaker against Joe Gacy earlier in the show. Gacy said no one should fear change, but they should fear what he'll do if he doesn't win the title. Braun wore the same singlet that Rick Steiner wore during his first match ever on Raw. That was pretty cool. A druid was shown in the crowd eight minutes into the match, seemingly for no reason at that time. Gacy hit a sit-down powerbomb for a near fall. Braun hit a Frankensteiner. Then Gacy botched, taking a belly-to-belly suplex. Braun eventually countered Gacy's springboard clothesline move with a spear to retain the title clean and easy in 11 minutes. Uh, After the match, Braun put the title over his shoulder and two druids with red face coverings got onto the apron as NXT went off the air. On social media, we eventually saw that the druids attacked Braun with a steel chair and they ended up stretching him out uh, on a gurney uh, in this weird leather gurney that had barbed wire on it for really no reason, but they stretched him out of the arena with Gacy kind of looking on. So look, The match was nothing to write home about. Some good action in parts, very sloppy in other parts. But the key is nobody wanted this match. No one needed this match. And then it ended from a TV standpoint with a cliffhanger with Druids, which obviously is going to continue the Joe Gacy storyline that no one wanted in the first place, yet it's still ongoing. The whole thing is maddening. This has been such a massive downgrade for Breaker. He needs to get the hell out of this Gacy storyline and NXT absolutely needs to move on. I have no idea why they are still doing this. Zero point zero. Uh, But the rest of the show, huge, huge step up from that. Uh, The North American Championship, Cameron Grimes defending against Carmelo Hayes and Solo Sokoa. This opened the show. It was weird during intros because Hayes and Sokoa actually got cheered while Grimes was booed. Um, I think that was more because people do love Mello and Sokoa. Not that they dislike Grimes, but it was strange for that all to happen. Solo was easily the favorite in the match. It was real chaotic to start, which to me felt real because triple threat matches shouldn't be smooth when there's three dudes all trying to fight each other and you can only really concentrate on on one person at a time. So I kind of liked the way this started. 
Sokoa broke a fall after the Spanish crossbody with a senton. Sokoa then superkicked Grimes as Melo used the momentum for a code red. Then they quickly combined for a cool superplex powerbomb. Sokoa splashed the corner and did a toss flip over German suplex on Grimes before powerbombing Melo into him. Then he hit a spinning Uranagi for a broken fall. Grimes caught them in a double hurricanrana, then hit a poison rana on Melo for a great 2.9. Hayes countered Grimes' uh, cave-in with a code breaker for another false finish. Sokoa countered the flying leg drop with a super kick to the chest, then hit the Uso splash on Grimes for another 2.9 false finish broken by Melo. Solo was ready to hit the Samoan drop on Melo when Grimes jumped off the top rope, hit a cave-in into Sokoa, which allowed the Samoan drop to hit as well. Then Grimes covered Solo for the 1-2-3 to retain the title in 15 minutes. This was an absolute banger in every definition of the word. I like it. I like it a lot. All three guys looked main roster ready. We got appropriate false finishes without overdoing it. Everyone got the spotlight. The finish involved all three guys. And it was squeaky clean, which Grimes needed because he's still the new champion. You could not have asked for more from this. It was a takeover-worthy match. I went 4.25 stars and an A. I had written down that it was the match of the show. But after watching Dynamite, uh, Rampage, Raw, and SmackDown from the last week, this was the match of the week. Good job to all three guys. We actually got back-to-back awesome matches on NXT because what came immediately after this was Grayson Waller against Nathan Frazier. Uh, Backstage before the match, Frazier put over how big of a deal it was for him to compete on WWE television in the United States for the first time. He said it was a moment he's been dreaming of his entire life. Frazier actually got an awesome entrance that um, really made him feel like a big deal. It was almost Neville slash Ricochet-esque, which was, of course, appropriate given his speed uh, and agility and athleticism and everything, but it immediately made this guy feel like a big deal, which is great because, you know what? He is a big deal. Uh, he showed off his that speed and athleticism I just mentioned. He showed it off consistently early in the match. Chase you distracted, cheering in the crowd. Waller caught Frazier trying a springboard and hung him on the top rope. He later hit a sit-down powerbomb for a near fall as Chase U started the wave in the crowd. Waller mocked Seth Rollins, who, by the way, is Frazier's trainer, uh, with a stomp. Frazier avoided it and hit a missile tope suicida. He caught Waller's rolling cutter with two super kicks as Waller barely grabbed the bottom rope to avoid the fall. Waller then avoided Frazier's high-risk move and hit a crazy flipping unprettier, I think is what it was, that I have never seen executed before. It just goes to show that Waller is an immense, immense talent. Frazier then went for an avalanche Spanish fry, but got hung up on the top rope again by Waller. Chase U blasted an air horn. Waller got distracted by that and tripped. He got hung up on the top rope himself. Frazier then jumped back in, hit a Phoenix splash. By the way, a perfectly executed Phoenix splash to win clean, semi-clean, I guess, in 13 minutes. Frazier celebrated with Chase U after the bell. I thought this was the best one-two punch of matches that NXT has started a show with in eons. These guys absolutely tore the house down. Frazier is a supreme talent, and with Rollins' support, certainly, he should go extremely far in WWE. Entering skills, selling, personality, this guy has it all. We already knew coming in that Grayson Waller has it. But Frazier clearly has it as well. This was a blast, and they even gave Frazier a debut win over one of the brand's top stars. I told you guys I was concerned about that last week. Turns out my concern was unjustified. I went four stars and an A- minus for the match just because of the distractions. Without those, this probably would have been another 4.25 star match. I absolutely loved this. Uh, Mandy Rose went tanning and put a Playboy bunny cutout on her hip. Very uh, 90s and uh, early 2000s of her, by the way. When Wendy Chu... Uh, snuck in wearing a shark costume with her pillow and raised the tan level on the booth to high. Mandy then came out completely burnt, so Toxic Attraction said she should probably stay home from the beach because she doesn't look good, and they decided to leave without her. Very classic, you know, mean girls retribution type of stuff. Not great, but there's been far worse. Uh, So later, we saw Gigi Dolan and JC Jane having fun in the water in their bikinis when Chu and Roxanne Perez ran up to steal their shoes and car keys. They parked the car far away so that The champions had to run on the hot pavement to get there. This was cornier than the first segment, 
but it was right in line with what we were just talking about, Mean Girl Retribution stuff. Lots of gratuitous bikini shots throughout both segments, but it is the toxic attraction gimmick after all. So if there's going to be one gimmick where you do this, one group of people, toxic attraction being that group, it does make sense. It's just not really my favorite stuff. But, you know, I will say to a small level, this was entertaining. Uh, Tony D'Angelo and Santos Escobar had their sit-down meeting. Legato del Fantasma almost slipped. They had so much drip coming out of their ride. Uh, Escobar was bothered that AJ Galante was there. Don't get me wrong, Santos. I was bothered by that too. Escobar wanted D'Angelo to follow his lead, so D'Angelo got upset. Uh, Then eventually Escobar offered a truce. They toasted to a peace agreement, but stared each other down while they were doing the toast. Later in the parking lot, Escobar confronted Galante and Legato kidnapped him old school style, just like they used to do. It was funny to see that go down, by the way, in the middle of like a regular outdoor shopping center, probably in some Orlando suburb, but that's what they did. Uh, It was campy, entertaining. I mean, look, we're dealing with a fake cartel and a fake mafia. I could poke a couple holes in it. There's really not reason to do so. I'm glad it happened at a restaurant and not in the ring, which would have pulled away any remaining minor shreds of authenticity to it. I was entertained by this. I thought it was pretty campy and funny. So no harm, no foul. Uh, We had Natalia and Lash Legend against Cora Jade and Nikita Lyons. This was the only women's match on the show. They did make up for it by doing a bunch of women's matches last week, but still that was a little disappointing. Natalia and Nikita had a really nice sequence together. It kind of looked like, you know, they were the same character wearing different gear, like in a video game. Like if you're Guile in Street Fighter and in one he's wearing blue and then green and he's fighting each other. That's kind of what it looked like on occasion with Natalia uh, and Nikita here. Legend did a big running clothesline, knocking her and Lions outside. Nikita got the hot tag and hit a flipping neckbreaker on Natalia for a near fall. Natalia accidentally booted Legend and got thrown outside. Lions hit a German suplex and her split. Then she forgot she was legal. She tried to make the cover. She finally tagged in Jade. She hit an avalanche sent on for the win in about 12 minutes and 30 seconds. So it did get plenty of time. It wasn't bad. Natalia carried the match. Lions did flash when she was working with Natty. Not much more other to say than they took care of business. I'd probably say 2.75 stars C plus is probably where I'm at. Um, Above average, but nothing that special. Uh, The Viking Raiders fought the Creed brothers in a tag team match. Roderick Strong tried to pump up the Creeds during training, saying the Raiders were their biggest challenge yet. Then he brought over Ivy Nile to make it clear he's the leader of Diamond Mine and what he says goes. The Raiders later said that this would be a battle the Creeds can't train for in a gym. Pretty deadly interrupted to make jokes, and the Raiders threatened that they would change their focus to them if they weren't careful, so the champions dipped out. As far as the match, the Raiders hit the Viking experience finisher. Seriously, 45 seconds into the match, and Julius Creed just kicked out. I just, I didn't understand why they did it or what the purpose of that was. Ivar hit a huge splash off the apron into Brutus outside. Then he hit him with a double underhook sit-down powerbomb for a near fall. Ivar then powerbombed Eric into Brutus, uh, and then he hit a huge splash, only for a near fall. Later, Julius hopped straight up onto the top rope for a superplex on Ivar. Ivar ducked the basement lariat and hit a huge roundhouse kick as the Raiders combined for an assisted leg drop with Brutus breaking the fall. As the match got chaotic late, which it certainly did, uh, Strong ran through behind the referee's back with a huge lifted knee to Ivar, who was hanging over the bottom rope. That allowed Julius to hit the basement lariat for the win in 13 minutes. And then after the bell, the Creed saw Strong interfere on replay, and they actually got angry at him. He told them, hey, a win's a win, don't worry about it. This match got off to a really odd start, with the Creed's kicking out of a finisher in 45 seconds, as I said, and then kicking out of a ton of other really big moves that all could have ended the match. But as business picked up, this thing banged. Not just that, it was Obviously. Big meaty man slapping meat. <laughs> That's what I, I mean, we got a lot of meat on meat action there. Put your meat on my meat, man. Gently now. Gently, gently. So even though it was strange at the beginning, I did go 3.75 stars B plus and 4.5 slabs of beef because there was a lot of beef flying out there in the ring. The post-match was interesting because it was reported this week that Roderick Strong has actually requested his release from NXT. He apparently did it a couple months ago and WWE denied it because they have plans for him. But it almost feels as if with that disagreement at the end of the match, it may have been the beginning of an angle to write him off television. 
We'll have to see about that. Obviously, we can't make any predictions. Uh, Speaking of the releases, so Indy Hartwell looked at her hand with a sad face in the locker room when Duke Hudson walked in looking sad as well. They took a glimpse at each other. Hudson, it was very romantic comedy-esque, thought, oh, she wants to kiss me. So he tried to go in for a kiss. When Hartwell completely shut him down, ew, no, whole deal, uh, with a bunch of disdain. It was an interesting way to allude to the releases without saying a word, because how could you even, in kayfabe, explain the decision to cut two people in the middle of a four-person angle who are on opposite sides of the angle? Like, it would have been one thing if they cut, God forbid, Duke Hudson and Persia Parada. Then you could say, okay, you just write them out, and Indy and Dexter, they go on with their lives. But they, they cut out you know, the, the woman and the man on different sides of the, of the aisle, for lack of a better term. So look, I have no idea how they're going to move forward with Indy and Duke, but at least they didn't pretend that nothing happened, which I at least appreciated. Alba Fire got a quick vignette, basically promoting her re-debut next week. Fallon Henley got a breakout tournament vignette where she talked about her love for horse riding and getting rowdy with Briggs and Jensen. Tatum Paxley also got a vignette about her powerlifting bonafides and how visualization has helped her success. So we got the field set pretty solid for a breakout tournament. I am excited. Roxanne Perez has to be the clear favorite to win the entire thing. Uh, And then lastly, a WWE trainer told Jensen that his arm injury would heal quicker than normal because it was strong. He asked, is there any reason why your right hand is stronger than your left? Which I will admit did make me laugh for a split second. Uh, The guys stayed angry at Von Wagner who hurt them. There's nothing really to add. Look, juvenile humor is juvenile humor. Every once in a while, it can pop you. Just like farting gimmicks, you know, not necessarily in wrestling, but in comedy, you see a movie where there's a farting gimmick. Nine times out of 10, you roll your eyes, but every once in a while, it's funny. This is one of the times where asking about a strong hand, yes, that was indeed funny. Uh, So that was it from NXT Spring Break-In. As you can tell, I very much enjoyed the show. A couple elements I could have done without, but for one of those special episodes, You know, I appreciated their effort. It was their highest rating since January from a total viewers perspective. So going up against that NBA competition, um, you know, for them putting on a special show without a lot of big main roster names. Yes, Natalia and the Viking Raiders were on it, but that's not Dolph Ziggler. You know what I mean? That's that's it's a different level, unfortunately, even though Natalia, of course, is an all time legend for the women's division Uh, to be able to promote a show like that, to do a nice rating uh, that should make. At WWE and NXT feel good. I still believe if they if they just hone in on what makes this show interesting and why people like it, they have an opportunity to do 750,000 viewers on a on a week by week basis, but they just got to cut some of the inexperienced fat on the back end and focus more on the stuff that people are really enjoying. So that is it for NXT. Let us move on to AEW where as always we're going to break down Dynamite and Rampage mixed together because the storylines do intertwine. Let's not waste a lot of time. Let's just get right to it. On Dynamite, Hangman Adam Page came out in the middle of the show. He, of course, is the AEW world champion to address CM Punk as the challenger. Hangman said it would be easy to show Punk respect and just leave it at that. But instead, he said he wouldn't be there to shake his hand or do a masturbatory Bret Hart tribute. Fantastic line, by the way, Hangman. Kudos on that. Uh, But instead, he would destroy Punk. He told the fan he's going to want a refund on his Punk shirt after the match. Hangman also said he would embarrass Punk in what would be the fight of Punk's life. So don't get me wrong here. This was a damn good promo. But it was also a bit strange to have your babyface, who was a longtime underdog, who finally became champion, come out as the tweener for a huge main event at a signature show. I figured Punk would be in that role because he slides in and out of babyface, tweener, heel so effortlessly and he's so good on the mic. Hangman's language here does create some booking intrigue because it sets up a situation where he should really not lose if this verbiage and line of talk continues, but it also creates a storyline for Punk to beat him because perhaps Hangman is now feeling himself and he's become overconfident. There's plenty of time until the show before we make predictions, but as Brett Charles Malam at Brett underscore Malam tweeted at me during the show, it was definitely Hangman's most interesting promo as champion. And that's a positive because most of what he's done as champion has really not been that interesting. Not the best promo that he's ever cut, but definitely the most interesting promo since he has taken that championship. On Dynamite, we had Wardlow 
uh, against a mystery opponent of MJF's choosing. That opponent ended up being W. Morrissey. For those uninitiated, Morrissey is Big Cass from WWE, who is now wrestling full-time in Impact. This, of course, paid off MJF's normal booking of challengers, bringing someone in from outside. Wardlow again entered in handcuffs with security to no music. MJF came out for the intro. Cass looked fantastic, by the way. He was kicking Wardlow's ass pretty strongly when the crowd did We Want Enzo and No We Don't call and response chants. This was unfortunate. It was also really unnecessary. Big Cass briefly mocked Enzo's dance. Uh, Morrissey got a near fall on a boss man slam. After getting a ton of offense, Wardlow eventually hit a moonsault and one powerbomb for the clean one, two, three. After the match, Wardlow played like he would accept being handcuffed again before just taking out 20 cops and backstage staff with one punch each. Then he powerbombed one guy over the ropes into 19 others. Wardlow said he's not going to stop until he fights MJF and gets his release. Fans loved it. MJF agreed to the terms with conditions that he will give in a contract signing next week in his home of Long Island. So obviously this match is going to be on double or nothing. This was, by the way, let me be clear, a tremendous match. I absolutely loved it. Big meaty man slapping me. I'm not saying it was like some epic battle or anything, but I went 3.5 stars and a B and I gave it four full slabs of beef because there was a lot of beef flying out there in the ring. Morrissey looked great and I came out of this match absolutely convinced that WWE needs to re-sign him when his impact contract expires. He's not exactly going to be Drew McIntyre, but he could come in and have a very similar resurgence with a lot of positive fan sentiment behind him. So if he stays on this track, he stays clean, everything works out, I could totally see Big Cass back in WWE. Uh, the Wardlow MJF post-match, it was pitch perfect. We got a great crowd response from it. This was the best thing AEW gave us through Rampage or Dynamite. It was my favorite individual segment of the entire week. No question about it. The only thing I have to say that's a criticism. And it's because it's coming off of what I said last week. They basically shit on Lance Archer last week. He almost, you could, well, he didn't get squashed, but he got beaten pretty easily. And then he took four power bombs. Meanwhile, Morrissey only takes one from Wardlow, gets pinned one, two, three. Now it makes sense because he's a talent from another company. So you're not gonna allow this guy to get embarrassed on your television product. But to do it exactly one week, after you basically embarrassed Archer, one of your own guys on your television product, that's a really bad look. And it's exactly what I thought was gonna happen last week when we discussed this. So I hate that I was right, but guess what? I was right. On Dynamite, Chris Jericho fought Santana. First on Rampage, Santana attacked Jericho at the announce booth with basically a single strike that set up the Dynamite match. Santana attacked before the bell. He later tried three amigos and a frog splash and no offense to him, neither of them was done that well. Santana also hit a stunner and a discus lariat for near falls. After a cannonball in the corner, the referee got distracted and Jericho won with a low blow and Judas effect. A five on two beatdown ended with a bat shot from Jericho. I enjoyed the match, uh, mostly because Jericho let Santana look like a star getting in a lot of offense, but the finish, the post-match, totally eye-roll inducing. This would have been a great spot to debut whoever's going to get the backs of Santana, Ortiz, and Eddie Kingston because Kingston was not there. It would have been a great opportunity for those people to come in. Next week, you have all five of them battle the other five, and then eventually you set up the match for double or nothing. So I don't know why they're waiting on it, but it just felt like a missed opportunity. Uh, other than that, though, you know, there were some positives here. Uh, let's go to a couple Owen qualifying matches. We had Darby Allen versus Swerve on Rampage. Darby hit an over-the-top stunner outside, then a much later a code red for a near fall. Swerve got his knees up on a coffin drop, plus he hit the knockout kick, but Darby broke the fall with the bottom rope. Then they did a vertical suplex over the ropes off the apron, which really looked nasty. Uh, Ricky Starks ran down, Sting confronted him. That distracted Swerve for some reason, who got back in the ring and was caught by Darby with some type of leg hook pinning combination for the win. Later backstage, Darby said that's not how he wanted to win, and Swerve said he was rooting for him in the Owen. Despite a couple big spots, this match just felt like it should have been a lot more. And Swerve losing again, even though he had an excuse, it is mind-numbing booking. You did not need to have him in this tournament or in this match. I'll say 
3.25 stars and a B for the effort. I was just surprised I didn't like this more than I did. On Dynamite, we had another qualifier, Jeff Hardy against Bobby Fish. Jeff cut a promo on Rampage about honoring Owen and being excited about the tournament. I legitimately, I'm not even joking, I'm not being sarcastic. I legitimately forgot Jeff was in AEW for a moment, like before he did this promo. Adam Cole then cut a promo saying Fish would be the third undisputed elite member in the Owen. Cole ended up on commentary. Hardy got a great response for his entrance and he was wearing pink on behalf of Owen to like recognize him. Fish hit the avalanche falcon arrow for a near fall. Hardy grabbed the ropes on a knee lock. Then he hit Whisper in the wind as Fish laid there for what felt like an hour so he could crawl to the other side of the ring and finally hit Swanton Bomb and get the win. The crowd popped huge and it was a fun match. The Young Bucks came down for a face-off with the Hardys that did not immediately, you know, result in anything. I did notice when AEW showed the graphic that five of the first six men in the Owen were former WWE superstars, and I did think that was notable. Uh, Continuing with Dynamite, we had the Blackpool Combat Club against Butcher Blade and Angelico. John Moxley got the hot tag to clear the house. And then they did the normal finish where all three stomp and submit the opponents simultaneously. Danielson got the win with a triangle lock submission on Angelico. I continue to enjoy the booking of these guys. I love how they're slowly ramping up the level of competition. The best thing from BCC this week was actually not the match, but a video package that aired fully on social media, but only got like one third of its time on Dynamite. It may have actually been the best individual video package that AEW has produced in three years. So I tweeted it, follow us or go over to our account at Getting Overcast, find the video. I highly suggest you watch that. On Rampage, we had the Ring of Honor Television Championship as the main event. Uh, Samoa Joe against Trent Beretta. Joe basically said in the pre-match promos that he would kill Trent in the ring. And Trent was like, no, you won't. And that was the promo. Uh, Anyway, Joe won the match with a rear naked choke. The notable takeaway was that Joe looked good working in the ring with Trent. Jay Lethal and Satnam Singh came out. Orange Cassidy did his bullshit with Singh. So they wiped out best friends completely. Joe and Lethal then got separated by officials and agents. I don't understand why this keeps main eventing television. It had no juice from the crowd whatsoever. On Dynamite, Sanjay Dutt was angry that a Japanese wrestler from DDT got a vignette ahead of a match. I think his match is going to be on Rampage when Singh did not for his debut. And Lethal said he wants to fight the guy because of it. The promo didn't even make sense. Given Singh debuted in the fucking main event of a television show, what more do you need than that? It doesn't even make any sense. I like Lethal a little bit but I just have no desire to see these guys on Dynamite or Rampage. Samoa Joe later said he'd be coming for Lethal on Rampage. Good for you guys. I mean, it's just not interesting me right now. So also on Dynamite, the Varsity Blondes with Julia Hart were in the ring. Julia's face had gotten much darker around the eye. She still had the eye patch on. They've showed her sitting on steel steps in recent weeks, you know, looking depressed with the eye patch on. Brian Pillman Jr. said her mind got poisoned and then he quoted John Harbaugh, uh, the Baltimore Ravens head coach who also was his dad, Brian Pillman's real life best friend or or good friend from college at Miami of Ohio, who was in the crowd for the show. Pillman got enthusiastic. He was ready to defend his group, challenging House of Black to a fight. It sounded like it was a scheduled match, but instead it was just a three on two like fight. Pillman got lawn darted into Griff Garrison. Brody King hit a cannonball in the corner. Then Malachi Black approached Julia. Buddy Matthews put his hands on her shoulders and she walked over to Garrison, picked up a steel chair, and was ready to give him a chair shot. She lifted it all the way into the air, and then she stopped. So Black ripped the chair out of her hands, tore her eye patch off, and started screaming at her as she covered her eye like he was an abusive lover or something. It was very strange. Death Triangle ran down. They made the save, I guess. What was the point of this? Like, the crowd was hyped for Julia to transform and join House of Black, and then they just didn't pull the trigger. I mean, they've been teasing this on TV for weeks. This thing started six months ago. You know, I know people give AEW credit for long-term storytelling and slow burns. No, this is overdone, exaggerated. It's something they forgot about and they brought back. The entire thing honestly felt like a total waste of time. And my belief, and I don't know that it's accurate, but my belief is they did this entire thing only to show John Harbaugh in the crowd a half dozen times during the segment. So guess what? 0.0. 0.0. There's just really no excuse for this to have been 
as poorly done as it was and for them to not pull the trigger on Julia. So on Dynamite, we had Dante Martin versus Ray Phoenix. This immediately succeeded that segment. Julia was in the ring for some reason still when the entrances began. I have no idea why. Phoenix did an insane springboard moonsault front slam off the middle rope and later a pop-up cutter for near falls. Phoenix tried the same move later from the top rope, but they both landed on their feet and then just kind of stood there looking at each other for a moment. Martin came back with a poison rana, but he missed his nosedive and Phoenix caught him with a cradle into a sit-down falcon arrow for the win and they eventually hugged after the bell. The athleticism, the inventiveness on here, exceptional. Loved it. It was the exact match you would expect from these two. To be a tad critical, there was a lack of selling and really, it was just a spot fest more than anything else. I appreciate spot fest. I love matches like that for their entertainment value, but unlike others, I'm not gonna gush over them from a grade perspective. So I gave this 3.5 stars and a B. Now, as far as the Owen goes, the field is officially set, even though we weren't ever officially told it was an eight-man field. So we have Jeff Hardy versus Darby Allen. That's gonna be a first-round match. And while that's obviously exciting due to comparisons that Darby's gotten throughout his entire young career, it feels to me like it's kind of being thrown out there when it's really something I'd like to have seen be built up through storyline, right? Maybe even as a second round match where they both are fighting different people in the first round, but they look at the bracket and they're like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we got the opportunity? So then there's a two week or a three week build and then you finally get that match. So just throw them together in round one really for no good reason. To me, that was just a waste. Uh, Samoa Joe is gonna end up fighting a Joker in the first round. Now, given the finals of the Owen are supposed to be at Forbidden Door, if memory serves, to me, it would make a lot of sense for this to be someone from New Japan. I'm really not sure why it wouldn't be actually, but if not, the one name who makes the most sense to be the Joker here for a wrestling tournament would be, of course, Cesaro. Now, I suppose Johnny Gargano could be another option if it's a debut, but I have a feeling for some reason, I don't know why, I really think he's gonna wind up back in WWE. Cesaro would make more sense if it's a Gaijin, if it's a non-Japanese wrestler. Miro's return could also be used here, but I have a feeling they're gonna save that for the double or nothing battle royal or whatever they end up doing. Either way, I really like the way AEW makes stuff like this exciting, right? It's something that WWE just does not do on the rare occasions. They do special events, a King of the Ring tournament, anything like that. Hell, they didn't even make the Royal Rumble exciting with surprise entrance this year. Meanwhile, with AEW, you frequently get a Joker or a mystery opponent or something like that. It it keeps everything fresh. And yes, I do agree, their roster is indeed too large and they are not using a lot of people well or consistently enough. I maintain that. I know people disagree. Tony Khan disagrees. Well, he's wrong, okay? It's too big at this point. But um, even still, with it being too big, like bringing Morrissey in, um, bringing in like Tanahashi, let's say, and allowing him to have a match in the Owen tournament, something like that would obviously be super cool. And as a one-off, it is very exciting for a viewer to be able to see something like that. And not to mention, by the way, someone attending the show to be able to get that special moment, of course, is very cool. Uh, Staying with Dynamite here, before the women's main event, Thunder Rosa cut a live promo telling her story and putting herself over. She said some still criticize the AEW women's division, but then she didn't say they shouldn't criticize it. So I guess she's saying it's accurate. I don't know. Uh, She called out Serena Deeb as someone she used to idolize. Deeb said she respected Rosa and they can make AEW the best women's division in the world as long as she's the champion. Rosa asked for a bet, but they didn't bet anything, at least nothing that I could take away from the segment. It was a decent confrontation, but Rosa just kept interrupting Deeb, which was really odd. It really felt like this was a make good more than anything for the bullshit they did with Rosa in terms of her debut promo as champion when Nyla Rose attacked her. I will say that Rosa cut a more interesting and more natural story promo than Lacey Evans has in an entire month doing taped vignettes on SmackDown. So I actually enjoyed this, but I did think it was odd. And I also thought it was strange that they like admitted that their division is criticized, but didn't say why it shouldn't have been. Uh, So this preceded the main event of Dynamite, which was the Ring of Honor Women's Championship, Deanna Perrazzo, the champion, defending against Mercedes Martinez, the interim champion. This began with 10 minutes left in the show because of that extended promo that preceded it. And a third of this match was picture in picture. The promo should have been held until next week just to give this more time. Anyway, 
Martinez hit a fisherman's buster for a near fall. Peraza then caught her in some type of rolling slam for a near fall. Martinez took her off the top rope, stomped her into the canvas, and became the undisputed champion with a dragon sleeper. Three stars, B minus for the match. This was a very odd decision to put this as the main event when you have a woman who is barely on AEW television and someone who's not even signed to the company having her first match ever on AEW television. The crowd was absolutely dead. It did not give a shit. And for good reason, because there was nothing for them to care about, even though these two are great wrestlers. AEW's given us deserving women's main events before, but this was not one of them. This should have been in the normal spot with Phoenix and Martin finishing the show. It was also a slow as hell match and an absolute drag. Just really bad decision-making all around. On Dynamite, Jurassic Express stepped up to Ricky Starks and Powerhouse Hobbs, who challenged for the tag team titles last week. Jungle Boy wanted a shot at the FTW title before they went for the tag belts. Christian Cage threw some insults. Stark accepted the challenge. Most of the backstage segments here have gone in one ear and out the other, but I did think this one was well done. It makes plenty of sense that Jungle Boy should basically want a quid pro quo title match given they want a tag team title match. But by the way, why does Jungle Boy get every opportunity and we never see Luchasaurus wrestle singles? Doesn't make any sense to me. On Rampage, Keith Lee fought Colton Gunn. Half the time, AEW was not at a commercial break. These guys were standing around pushing each other in the ring. Lee was going for the spirit bomb when Gunn tried to counter. So Lee hit the Big Bang catastrophe instead for the win. After a one week reprieve on Dynamite, Swerve and Keith were stuck back wrestling on Rampage again. Uh, There was also a weird backstage segment with Gun Club and the Acclaimed, and on Dynamite, they all decided to team up as a foursome. On Dynamite, Swerve said he and Lee had unfinished business with Stark and Hobbs. Lee said the heels would swerve in our glory. If that's meant to be a tag team name for them, let me just say there are way better options using all their gimmick names than swerve in our glory. On Rampage, it looked like Hook and Danhausen were going to start a match as booked. I thought that's what they had promoted. Instead, Mark Sterling interrupted and Tony Nese attacked from behind. Danhausen did the curse and he thought it worked, but it turns out it was just Hook standing behind him being intimidating. Danhausen tried to shake hands, but Hook pushed him away and that was really it. So just more of this time-wasting stuff. Uh, Dynamite for the third show in a row. There was a backstage promo with Britt Baker, Jamie Hayter, Tony Storm, and Ruby Soho. Apparently there's a no physicality rule until Rampage. So they just ranted at each other for 30 seconds. I've been ready for this match for two weeks. I actually badly want to see this match, but the backstage segments are not doing it any favors at all. And then lastly, on Rampage, we had the baddies against Sky Blue, Trish Adora, and Willow Nightingale. Jade Cargill pinned Adora after Jaded in two minutes and 45 seconds. This was pathetic. It's something that should have been on Dark, had no business being on either of the main shows. On Dynamite, Sterling called the trio's match unbelievable, as he referred to this match. And Red Velvet said she would win the Owen. That was just odd as well. Nothing at all I cared about. It's got about as much chance of getting over as Orange Cassidy. The whole thing with the baddies, them just deciding to have her back, just doesn't make any sense and certainly not helping Jade. And it was a terrible follow-up, by the way, for winning what was supposed to be a monumental 30th match. Um, and obviously she's the TBS champion as well. So that's it from AEW this week. I I really did think that Dynamite was an odd show. The middle 45 minutes of it were exceptionally strong and very, very entertaining. That contained almost every single thing I told you that I liked, but Rampage was kind of back to being easily can miss television and the rest of Dynamite just wasn't exceptionally strong. So yeah, after a few weeks of Rampage and Dynamite, both being exceptionally good shows that I was very excited to watch. This year was this, not this year, this week. uh, It was definitely a downer. And I do give, if you are comparing and contrasting NXT and AEW, I do this week give NXT the edge in the entertainment and wrestling department. I thought the two best matches combined in those shows were both on NXT, which is certainly a surprise sometimes, even though the talent who were in those matches, uh, Cameron Grimes, Carmelo Hayes, Solo Sokoa, Grayson Waller, Nathan Frazier are obviously top tier talents. But that is it. Uh, For this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, allow me to remind you briefly what is still to come. On Sunday, 6.30 p.m. Eastern, we will have a live Twitter Spaces show, which you can access by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. It will be a pre-show for WWE WrestleMania Backlash on Sunday night as soon as that premium live event. 
goes off the air, we will have a WrestleMania Backlash instant analysis podcast right in this feed. You are not going to want to miss that Sunday night or Monday morning. Next Tuesday, we will be back with the WWE edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. On Wednesday, we will have a special 300th episode of Getting Over. And then next Thursday, same bat time, same bat channel. We will be here with our latest AEW and NXT show. Last, before I get out of here, a reminder that the Getting Over Wrestling podcast So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Also leave a review. Let people know how much you love the show. Those ratings, those reviews are extremely important to helping us grow. I'm excited to bring you guys full coverage of WrestleMania Backlash over the weekend with vintage Chris Manini. And I am thrilled to be able to say that our 300th episode is coming next week. My oh my, how time flies. But with all of that out of the way, for this show, the Silver King is just going to leave you with three final words. Bye for now.